Hey all, welcome to the Common Good Podcast. Really excited to have this conversation as a replay for you today. About a year ago, we talked with Beth Allison Barr about her book, Making of Biblical Womanhood, how the subjugation of women became gospel truth. And I think it's more timely now than ever. We'd love to re-up these for you, sort of as our best of conversations. And this one is really great. Uh, There are so many issues in our society from violence, specifically gun violence, uh, the way we choose to pay people uh, for their compensation. You're going to hear Beth say that this idea that we've been paying women 70 cents on the dollar for what we've been paying men is actually something that has gone back to medieval times. So it is baked into the way human beings have been treating one another. So these issues of how women are are treated and the way masculinity plays out and is damaging in our society are not just something that we need to deal with in our society. They're something that we need to deal with in our humanity. And so she really raises these big, beautiful questions. She comes from Baylor University. She'll talk about that. She comes from a more conservative, middle of the road to conservative Baptist background. And uh, she shares, this is not something she wanted to get into. She didn't want to see herself as an activist, but felt like she needed to after the election of Donald Trump and watching the religious communities start to follow these notions of this fictitious biblical womanhood. So here's that conversation. I just had a chance to re-listen to it. It's really great. She is terrific. So hope you enjoy. And if you haven't yet gone over to our YouTube channel and subscribed, we would love it if you would. We're trying to do some things over there and we need to hit some benchmarks and you can help us do that here in the next couple of weeks if you were to subscribe to our channel and then just start watching a bunch of videos. That helps as well. All of these conversations that we have on the podcast, we also have where you can see the face of the person and even engage uh, in some conversation if you ever want to watch live. So here's our conversation with Beth Allison Barr and her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Beth, so good to have you here. Uh, Thanks for being with us. We want people to have an open-eyed view of what's happening in the world on this podcast so that they can take on this world in ways that lets their own light shine. So uh, you're clearly doing that. And thank you. Thank you. And I I always say to people that I'm in Minneapolis and standing up today and reminding myself that sitting is the new smoking. So I'm kicking the habit today and standing up. (laughs) And if you're in the chat, if you're willing to tell us in in the chats on the social stream here where you're talking to us from or listening from, we'd love to hear from you. So would Would you do the same? Tell people where you're coming from, Beth, and and, uh, where you find yourself. Yeah. So I'm coming from Waco, Texas, and we had a really exciting week because um, Baylor University won the NCAA National Basketball Championship for the men's, and it's the first time we've ever done that. So our campus has been really excited this week. Um, But I'm speaking from my office at Baylor University, and I too am standing up. I have a standing desk, and I mostly use it. Sometimes when the days are really tiring, I will sit, but it's it's early still. Yeah, I, I'm with you. If you just say to yourself, I can do it today. I can stand up uh, today. And it's a, it's a real commitment. Well, at Baylor, you're, you're not only a, uh, a, I guess, a basketball fan, but you're also a professor of history <laughs> and uh, associate dean of the graduate school and, and the president of the Conference on Faith and History. Uh, which I, I'm very interested yes. in. That. So maybe we can talk a bit about that today. Um, people don't know Baylor sure, is I would a love school to talk about related CFA. to the Southern. The, Baylor is a school related to the Southern Baptist uh, denomination. Is that Baylor right? is Baptist? Baylor is Baptist. Um, so it is more connected with the Baptist General Convention of Texas. And so I know in the Baptist world, there's a lot of different kinds of Baptists, which people are not always aware of. So yes, we are connected to the SBC, but we're more connected to the BGCT. Um, And then also, you know, there is some funding too from the CBF. So 
The, or a general uh, Baptist university. Yeah. <laughs> and so look, friends, if you're if you're new to religion or to the Baptist life, um, there's all kinds of versions of of Baptists. Like if you're Catholic, you kind of got some orders that you're that you might be able to relate to. But boy, in the Protestant world, we know how to slice up this ham into the smallest, uh, uh, thinnest little pieces that we can. Uh, so that's Baptist life. Very um, true. And, but but Baylor is a is a major university. It's a significant mm-hmm. place, major hospital, teaching university on on a lot of issues, and has some of the best thinkers right. uh, on the issues of religion and society and culture. Uh, Beth, which I'd put you in the category of. All right, so you wrote this book, The Making Thank of you. Biblical Womanhood: How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Um, I guess before I ask you to talk a bit about why you wrote it, can you say a few things about what biblical womanhood is for those who are who are new to this conversation? So for people who don't know what biblical would say, bless you. I am so glad and I wish I had been in your world. Um, biblical womanhood is the idea that um, women's subordination to men is divinely ordained. This idea that men are divinely called to be leaders and um, out in the public, and women are divinely called to support their husbands and to have a primary focus on home and house um, and teaching children. That this is, and that this is not just a cultural phenomenon, but this is actually the way God set up um, women and men's relationships to function. So that is biblical womanhood in a nutshell. Is, is biblical womanhood something that's been around and argued as a theological point for the history of the Christian tradition? Or is it a new advent or is there a new version of it now that we're all dealing with? Yeah, that's the that's that's really what my book is about. So on the one hand, there is an argument that biblical womanhood is not new. And there is some truth to that because biblical womanhood is patriarchy. And patriarchy is a system that has been with us since the beginning of civilization. Um, However, biblical womanhood itself, the biblical womanhood that we know today is really an origin um, originated in the 20th century. And so I'm trying to think here that there's sort of two versions. It's born in the late 19th, early 20th century. And then it really picked up steam in the movement that we know as complementarianism or biblical womanhood uh, really picked up in the 1970s and is a direct response to the to the feminist movement of the 1960s and 70s. So that's sort of when we think about biblical womanhood now, that's what it is. It's this very modern creation uh, that, but it has, the reason it is so powerful is because it mimics this much longer human tradition of patriarchy um, that has never, never been good for women. And I know that you're a history professor, so I'll be careful because I know that you're going to be thoughtful about all of your answers. And you're not only an, you know, you're not an activist, uh, as, as I am talking about these issues. Um, but can you say a few words about what patriarchy is? It's, it's common for people yes. to hear it in our society and people will be like, I'm against patriarchy. And I think it's one of those terms that people have a general sense um, but mm-hmm. no one uses it like in conversation, you know, it's not a, right. it's not a typical conversation. So what is patriarchy in the, I guess the technical sense, and then also in the practical sense of which this biblical womanhood is some Christian theological justification for Right. No, that's a very good question. And um, it's one, it's the reason that in the making of biblical womanhood, I start off with tackling what is patriarchy. And patriarchy is not only a term that people mostly don't use, it is also a term that is um, 
intentionally not used by many Christians. It's seen as something very negative, which, um, or the other understanding of it is that, of course, Christianity is patriarchal because of the patriarchs. You know, we yeah. think about the patriarchs in the Old Testament, and this is a term that we get all the time. So, what is patriarchy? Um, on the one hand, patriarchy is it has different meanings. Um, in the church, it has often been used to talk about the leaders of the church. And so you can think about the patriarchs in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. It has also been used to think about the, um, the significant figures in the beginning of Christianity and Judaism, the, the patriarchs. But historically what patriarchy is, it is a system that um, values women under men. And this is manifested in many ways. It's manifested in economic ways, in legal ways, in social ways, in cultural ways, in religious ways. Um, so, for example, a really good way to talk about patriarchy is um, the wage gap between women and men. And one of the things that most people don't realize today is that this wage gap is a historical continuity. Um, in the medieval world, and I'm a medieval historian, in the medieval world, women got paid about the same amount less, about 70 cents to a modern dollar, uh, less than men for exactly the same work. And this wow. is the same wage gap that we have today. So wow. this is a system of patriarchy um, in which just because women are not men, they get paid less than men. Just because women are not men, they are um, legally considered a different category and often considered to be under the authority of men. Uh, most women today don't realize that until the 1970s, if we wanted to buy a car or or wanted to have something such as that, we had to have a male cosigner um, in, to give us permission to do that. And that is patriarchy. So it, a system, a, a social system that um, values women as less than men. Wow, that's the Is clearest that definition. That oh yeah, yeah, with the with the precision and uh, sensitivity of a college professor. Thank you. That's that's extremely helpful. And there's a lot Good. of people whose experience with with biblical womanhood or the role of women and men being different, this phrase you use called complementarianism, which is a technical yeah. term for women have some roles, men mm -hmm. have other roles. Everyone's equal in your, in your roles. Yeah. Um, this, this kind of right, which we can talk about. A lot of people have only experienced that through their churches because often churches, the Catholic church is a patriarchal system, right? By design, a lot of evangelical and, and conservative churches, um, and other religions too. Religion does this. I was in a, a temple in Thailand, a Buddhist temple, and only men could mm -hmm. step up on the small risen platform and women had to sit in other places. Yeah. For a lot of us, we only experience it or experience it most profoundly in the Christian tradition, but it's really not only there. It's a, it's a larger societal um, uh, struggle. Is that, is, is that fair? And I'm not yes. letting churches off the hook because I think churches yeah. then try to baptize that idea with some theological teaching from Genesis or the book of no. Romans or something. This, this is a historical construct. This is something that um, women's historians have been talking about for a very long time. And this is one of the things that I think Christians just don't understand is that when we think about, the, about biblical womanhood today, we think about it as a countercultural movement. Um, we think that, of course, the world doesn't mm. value the Christian family structure in which wives submit graciously to their husbands and husbands lead spiritually um, 
um, as you know, as these these shepherd figures, um, and that this is something that should be against the culture and that the culture should not respond well to. But what we don't realize is that it's not countercultural. This is the way women are always treated. Um, you can you can call it different things. You can make it sound prettier, you know, saying separate but equal is a way that we've often tried to uh, to dress up inequality. We tried to do it in the civil rights movement and we try to do it with patriarchy in the Christian world. We call it complementarianism and we call it distinct gender roles that are still spiritually equal. But it all boils down historically to one thing. And that is, is that men, simply because the way they are born because of their bodies, that they have the right to have authority and actually have the better leadership capabilities than women do simply because of women's bodies. Um, and this is not biblical, <laughs> which is the main argument of my book. Okay. And, and it's a really important argument because there's people who say, yeah, look, society uh, matches what God intended. And for Christians and mm -hmm. Jews, they can look to the Old Testament and or the Jewish scriptures and to see that, no, there's a created order. And I hear a lot of people who make these arguments talk about this created yeah. order, that God was creating Adam first and then from Adam, mm -hmm. from the rib, a woman came. So women are derivative of man and there's a structure to the universe. There's a structure to earth. There's a structure to humanity yeah. and here's how it goes. So yeah, of course, you're going to have this all over the world for all of time because that's the that's the divine order. So is that what the Bible yeah. says? Let's let's start there. Uh, is, is I mean, even no. if you get before the Apostle Paul or Jesus or anything, is yeah. this how someone should understand their history of humanity from a biblical, from the Bible's uh, context and and textual mm -hmm. argument? We love the law and order argument. And historically speaking, this is a new argument. Um, this is not, in fact, if we look back, like for example, I'm a medieval historian. And one of the things that the medieval church emphasized, now medieval, the medieval world is a bastion of patriarchy, just like um, the modern world is a bastion of patriarchy. So it was also not a good place for women. But at the same time, the reasons that they argued for patriarchy were different than what they argue for today, which tells us something really significant. Um, and in the medieval world, the, the problem was women's bodies, that they had this Aristotelian idea. They, they were bold-faced about it. The problem was women's bodies, that women were corrupt men. Their bodies made them um, less intelligent. Their bodies made them less capable of understanding leadership um, and made them weaker than men. And so therefore women couldn't lead. However, there was a caveat in the medieval world that if women could forsake their bodies um, and if women acted more like men, then they could take on the responsibilities of men. And so this is why, and this was theologically sort of this understanding, one of the sermons collections that I deal with from the 15th century, um, it says, it says, women and God be men. And so women who can, you know, that spiritually women have the capability of escaping their bodies um, and which they saw as a consequence of the fall, that women are corrupt as a consequence of the fall. Um, and in fact, you know, whereas we argue today, complementarianism has made this eternal argument that women are always under the authority of men and that women were created to be under the authority of men. 
And in the medieval world, we actually do not see this. In fact, some medieval theologians, they said, you know, Paul's dictates about women only apply to wives um, because wives legally are under the authority of their husbands. And so this is what scripture, so if they're in that place, then they should be subordinate. Mm -hmm. But if women aren't married, it doesn't apply to them. And so this is a very, you know, so this shows us that in Christian history, while women, there have always been levels of patriarchy, they aren't always the same. And they are applied differently. Um, and so it really is this modern understanding that women are always supposed to be under the authority of men, are always created with these distinct roles that push women out of leadership. This is a new thing. Um, and if you actually look at it, trace it theologically, what you will find is that this order of creation bit, that started being argued with a vengeance after, you know, really when we get to the 19th and the 20th century is when we started getting all interested in this created order. And we started using our interpretations of Paul and reading those back into the Genesis story. Um, the medieval world didn't see it that way. In fact, the sins, and I'm, I'm thinking of sermons that I also could quote from this, that they, one of the arguments that they made is they said, look, yes, Eve sinned, but... Um, God redeemed Eve through putting Jesus in Mary's body. And so, you know, this idea that women, yes, they did sin, but this did not condemn women for all time. And that God actually intentionally used a woman to bring Jesus into yeah. this world. And one of the sermons says, it says, so you don't treat women as essentially less than men because God doesn't treat women that way. And it's this really powerful sort of statement. And I think we've forgotten that. Um, so the way Christians have understood patriarchy changes mm. because it's not built on the Bible. It's built on how we bring our culture to the Bible. Again, very helpful. And for those who aren't keeping up on their historical terms, what period of time do you consider the medieval period? Like oh, when you say yes, that you. window, what 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 yeah. years is that? So um, the ancient world really goes, you know, if we think about it, it um, goes up to the to around 500. That's really sort of a loose time. Um, the medieval world is considered to be 500 to about 1500. Think about the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And then the Reformation era is, of course, the 16th into the early 17th century. And then the latter half of the 17th century up to now is modern, early modern and modern. So if that's helpful. And yeah, it is helpful. My book that... covers all of this. <laughs> uh, you so. should pick it up. Yeah, you should go ahead and pick up your copy yeah. of The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Uh, you should pick that up. I think it's helpful because what a lot of people don't know is how much of our modern day Western civilization and Christianity is really rooted in this period of time from 500 to 1500. Like that is a... First of all, it's a long time. It's a thousand years, but that it's a very period long time. of time, boy, a lot of the ideas and a lot of the notions and a lot of the, the presuppositions of starting point are still coming from that period of time. And so when something like in the Christian tradition, I will just be so bold as to say, got it wrong, you know, a thousand years ago, um, and now it's carrying through, it feels like, well, people have always thought this. Uh, 
but that's because people uh, they they created an, a narrative in around 500, maybe 320 or somewhere, uh, going forward that's carried on. And if I remember right, wasn't it Saint Augustine or some people call Augustine, who had a theological argument that every human body in a mother's womb starts as a male, and then if it is subjugated to sin, it falls and becomes a woman. Is that well? It's yes. Right. It's based upon the Aristotelian, this Aristotelian idea that um, that the perfect state of the human embryo is a masculine one, and if something goes wrong, then it becomes a woman. Now, of course, what Aristotle said, he said that's a good thing because otherwise we couldn't have procreation. So it's a good mistake, but it is still that women are mistakes, uh, that we are genetically something's wrong with us. And this was carried into the early church. And in fact, what Augustine, um, Augustine did is he had an argument that we often don't think about all that much today, but he made the argument for original sin. And it was yeah. this idea that, um, he, that the sin of Adam and Eve, well, it's actually carried through Adam, which is interesting, but it's carried, it's created in, in the sex act itself. And so that it gets transmitted through the sex act itself. And this is also why sexuality in the medieval world was considered to be sinful, um, which also had severe implications for women because women were then, of course, because they are the ones who carry the children, the, the physical result of the sex act, they were often you know, considered perceived as be men. And so this carries on, and this one combined with this Aristotelian idea that women are bodies are deformed, and then they're perceived as being more sinful than men, and then it becomes a natural outcome. Well, of course, women shouldn't lead because women are more sinful and are their bodies, you know, something's wrong with them. So only women who are able to surpass those two things, who are able to prove that they are not sinful, which usually means forsaking motherhood, um, assuming in the Western world virginity. This is why virginity became so prized for women yep. because it proved their spiritual worth and it allowed them to escape the problems of their bodies. So yes, so this Aristotelian idea, it's so funny to me um, that this is still with us today, that that there's something innately wrong with women and, and we still carry this into the Christian church. Yeah, for sure. And the purity culture movement comes out of this. Oh, gosh, uh, so yes. much so much is rooted yes. in these in these ideas that feel like they've been around. Now, um Marianne Johnson, who's on F Facebook, uh, put up put up this com comment and she said, Hey, it's curious that modern science shows the embryo is female until it differentiates <laughs> into being male. So as it turns out, yep. Aristotle uh, you know, may, may have had something about starting with a gender norm, but as it turns out, it was female. And then, yeah, uh, later, I know. Uh, I mean, it's just assigned to me. Amazing how this. Yeah. Um, so they they got that completely wrong, yeah, and a yeah. lot of their ideas about women was based upon this very wrong idea about conception. Okay, so it carries there. There's an argument. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, for people who say, okay, the the church hasn't always and society hasn't always argued from a created order narrative, but they do right. now. 
And so there's a lot of people who yeah, hear do. created order narrative now. And when they yeah. hear, you know, I have a Black Lives Matter sign behind me. And when people see a Black Lives Matter sign, there are certain conservatives who will say, you know, what you guys are trying to do is you're trying to tear down men. You're trying to tear down patriarchy. So there's no place for men in the world. I mean, they make these huge jumps and they say, and you're violating created order. Like these are arguments that are rooted right in the daily conversations that are happening. I promise you, friends, if you think that out, that Beth and I are just talking about unusual things, you just you just go onto YouTube channels right now for uh, certain political movements, especially Make America Great Again movements and Trumpist movements. They are riddled with this stuff. It's the bedrock of so much of the foundation of a, a certain subset of that group. So this is alive and well in society and in culture. How do you, and the book does this really well, but how do you help people understand a way of thinking about, say, a Genesis text um, that's yeah. not in this biblical womanhood area, other than just sort of being like, look, no, nobody buys that stuff anymore. Just set it aside. You know, that, that's a real option that a lot of people take. Right. Uh, but if someone wants something other than that, uh, how, how, do you, how do you talk about that issue? So, um, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm in the classroom, and so I have students all the time who come with ideas. And one of the things I often do is I just ask them, why? Why do we assume that, a, that because Adam is created first, why does that assume superiority over Eve? You know, why do we think that? Is there any other pattern where that happens? And, you know, we think about it, we're like, oh, well, maybe inheritance patterns. Yes, but inheritance patterns where firstborn men are considered above the rest of the children. We know historically where that came from. That came from the Vikings. It's called primogeniture. Um, and it was to deal with their land problems that they had. And that was one of the reasons why they started going around and terrorizing everybody. It was these younger landless sons um, who no longer were part of the inheritance. And they carried primogeniture into the Western European world. And they that brought it over to the U.S., this that inheritance um, order. So this is not actually, you know, this is something, and while we do see inheritance in the Bible, we do see places of it. We also see a lot of places where inheritance is kind of thrown out the window by the Bible. Um, you know, take about Jacob and Esau. Um, we see inheritance, you know, firstborn, um, that is considered, that, that doesn't show worth. In fact, the whole thing that we have where God talks about, you know, Jacob and Esau, um, that God looks at the heart, at the inner person, that this order of birth doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, so God fights against time. Hierarchy. We look in the Old Testament. It's the Israelites who are always claiming to have a king. They say, we want to have somebody in charge. We want to have somebody over us. Um, you know, we want to have a royal lineage. And God's like, you don't need a king. You have me. And they, he finally lets them have one, not because that type of hierarchy is best, but because they, that's what they want. And so, you know, the, whole, the Bible is a resistance narrative mm. to what humans think is the best way that, that society should be structured. And God is always pushing back. You know, he's always providing a way. It's the, it's the weak in the Bible that are made strong. I mean, think about Rahab. Nice. Here we have this prostitute who then ends up in the lineage of Jesus. Um, you know, this is certainly bringing somebody who was not of any value to the world, who certainly was on the bottom of the created order and God lifts her up. 
the same thing with Mary, same thing with the apostles, the male apostles, God lifts up the weak and everything, you know, it's countercultural. And so it's funny, you know, the, the cultural thing to do is to say that the people who are born, you know, in the highest classes and who are born in the right social groups and who right. carry the power, those are the people who should be in charge. And God says, no, because I look at the heart. And so it's, I, it's funny to me that Christians try to argue this created order thing when that's not what we see God do. Um, we try to read hierarchy even into the Trinity, which humans have been doing from uh, for a long time. You know, I talk about this in my book. It's a, it's a, it's an old, old heresy called Arianism just redone over and over again. And it has been always condemned as heretical because there is no hierarchy in the Trinity. Um, and so it, I think hierarchy is something that humans try to impose because it's how we try to make sense of our world. Uh, but it is not something, it's not something that's important to God. And so I, I think, you know, that's where I would start. And in fact, if you think, it's, it's sort of funny too, because if you think about the created order in Genesis, it sort of builds up to the highest creation point. Yeah. And if you follow that logic, Eve <laughs> is the final creation. And yes. so, you know, if you follow that logic, <laughs> then genius. it should yeah. be the opposite. Right. Yeah, like, like, so, yeah, like I mean, day one was and, less order and day two is more order and all the way yes. up to uh, finally it's so, Eve. It's, yeah. it's just, finally yes, got it right. It doesn't stop yeah. with Adam. It doesn't stop with Adam. It continues on to Eve. And so, I mean, that is funny right. to me because I'm just like, that makes no sense. And I'm not arguing that women should be the ones in charge. It's just pointing out the illogic of this yeah. created order schema. <laughs> all right, so, so you're taking on and, and do it in, in such deft terms that the idea of biblical womanhood, well, it's not biblical and we could get into New Testament passages right. and how that's not what Paul was yeah. talking about. The gospel of John says you know, that there's another kingdom not born of a husband's decision or of human will. Yeah. Right? So not, not yeah. built of patriarchy, but built of all who are born of God, right? So, okay, we can, yes. we, we will stipulate for this purpose and for people that are new to this conversation, they should pick up the book, um, uh, The Making of <laughs> Biblical Womanhood, uh, right? Um, that, that okay, it's not, it's not biblical, but it's around. So um, yeah. how, how do we deal with it? Because it seems as if it is a, a wrong notion that women are weak and that therefore they should be under the authority of men or not do male things. Um, I think of Tucker Carlson, this person who's got a little TV show on Fox News, and Tucker Carlson was making a big to-do the other day about uniforms that are designed for women in the military when they're pregnant, and basically saying, pregnant women cannot defend this country. We need it to be men. And this strange sort of... Uh, masculinity narrative for our protection and that women should nurture, but men will protect. And first you have to be safe before you can be nurtured kind of notion. So men are first in, in our society. That thing, it is all over the place. Uh, yeah. It's funny and, to me too. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just thinking about the pregnancy thing because, you know, any woman that's actually 
been pregnant and given birth, physically arduous things to endure. And it's funny to me that that is a sign of female weakness. I mean, I just think about it. historically, you know, medieval women who would give birth and then they put those babies on their backs and they go back out to work, you know, and I'm just thinking, and it's uh, this to argue that that makes women weak is historically and um, medically wrong. Um, I think anyone, you know, the the physical part of carrying and birthing a child is so difficult. And yet women do it all the time and they keep going on with the rest of their lives. And so to me, that seems like it should be a sign that women definitely can do this because we always have. So I don't know. That's another illogical sort of thing in there. Um, (laughs) It sure is. And Mary, uh, Mary Marianne Johnson on the Facebook feed says, um, would you say that this patriarchy demand is based on physical power, i.e. or for the purpose of violence? And Mm -hmm. that seems to be part of the narrative, right? That, well, physically men are stronger. And, and then this comes up for people that uh, don't identify with what was their assigned gender at birth and can they compete in athletics or in other things where physical strength has a, has a role. So in college athletics or professional athletics, can somebody who is assigned with male gender narrative uh, but now identifies as female, where do they belong? And people bring up this you know, uh, issue of physicality in sports. But it's also a big question in just sort of society that we tend to give more credence to big and strong people. Like I'm a big person, yeah. so I'm six foot. I'm six foot seven, which is you know <clears throat> really tall oh, wow. and wide, and you know short. And yeah. the level at which people defer to tall people and to strong looking people, it's it's incredible. Like it's a real problem, right? And bigger people have to take that into consideration and how they physically are presencing with others. But there's so, so there's yeah. something in us, right? That like our society, our teachings, our our faith needs to help us to right size uh, our fears and not attribute it to more men. You even see this in the Derek Chauvin trial and his his killing of George Floyd. His argument was, yeah. well, he was a bigger man than me, therefore, I'm going to use more I had violence. Yeah, like violence and power and authority is being attributed to all kinds of physical. Uh, situations. Is that part of what we should recognize when we're dealing with m- this issue of womanhood that we need a better way to think about one another than Well, I think strength? what we need to think about is, con- is and I, of course, I, you know, I hesitate to get involved. I'm, I'm, I'm a medieval historian, so I'm not that kind of doctor, you know, <laughs> okay. talking about physical. But I do think that um, clearly what we see and what we have seen historically, okay, so let me talk about what I do know. Um, there's a couple of things here. First of all, let's say I was talking about the Vikings earlier, and I don't know if y'all follow, of course, I love to follow archaeological news and all sorts of fun things. But well, there who doesn't? Who doesn't follow their archaeological news had a, <laughs> I know, it's great. Yeah. There were some people, there were some burials that we've known about for a while. And they used to, they thought that they were male Vikings because of the way that they were buried. And because anyway, but they finally did analysis on them and they're actually women. Um, and they were buried as warriors, as these warrior, you know, folk. And so the thing is, is that I think we don't, we don't realize that women, while maybe most women don't fight, mm-hmm 
a lot of women do fight. Um, you know, men and women come in different shapes and sizes and physical differences, just like, um, you know, I mean, they always have. And so it seems to me that we have to realize that there is more breadth in what we think about who, what, women and men themselves than we often give, you know, credit for. Um, so I think that's one thing. And of course, you can go look up the Viking burials. It's a lot of fun. That's a, that's a good thing to, if, if you're on Twitter, that's a good social media feed to follow because um, it's a lot more palatable <laughs> than a lot of things that are out there. So I do think, but I do think, I do think that what we're talking about here is about power. And I do think that as humans, you're right, we tend to go towards the biggest and strongest. I mean, again, we can go back to the Old Testament. Um, the Israelites wanted Saul as their king because he was big and strong and powerful. Um, but who ended up to be the better king was David, who was small and the smallest of the brothers. And he was the one, you know, that his father was like, wait, surely you don't want this one because this is the youngest and the smallest. And that was who God said, yeah. had, you know, had was a man after his own heart. So the way we look at things is different than the way God looks at things. And I, it's funny to me that we always go back to our human instincts instead of trying to look at people through God's eyes. So I do think that's part of the problem. I also think power clearly is what's at stake here. Um, you'd think about the response. In fact, you know, I'm getting into some I'm getting into some waters right now because um, my book has gotten the attention of some folk who are heavily invested in complementarianism and leaders in complementarianism. And um, they are already speaking out against my book. And the reason they're doing that is not because they've read it, because they haven't. Um, they're speaking out against it because I'm challenging their power. And that's what it really comes down to. I mean, it's if, if, if I'm right and they're wrong, then their whole system that they have built and based their power on is wrong. And that's hard for people to give up. And if you think about the people who have been in charge in society, um, it, it's men and it's often upper class more privileged men, or maybe not always in the European world, it used to be more upper class. It's not so much that way now, but it is, um, it's white men who, who have more of the positions of power. So they have more to lose. And I'm, it is hard, but at the same time, God always calls us to hard things and he calls us to justice, to treating people. You know, we are one in Christ in Galatians. So there we are. I rambled a little bit there. No, small, no, I'm, small. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad that you did because it's th these issues are tied. They're tied together with so many other issues, right? So it can feel like a person is rambling, but what we're doing is we're realizing that there's all, all of these other uh, issues tangled up in this in this garden, right? Mm -hmm. We've got this garden that's grown up right out of soil of patriarchy, and so many things have grown in it. And then we're we're trying to figure out mm -hmm. one one from the other, right? And 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 even knowing like is this harmful or is it not? And one of the things that's a pushback against people who want to say, um, yeah, I'm a feminist, or want to say I, I want to remove patriarchy from our society and not make it the acceptable narrative any longer is that they're trying to get rid of gender, right? And then you you attach that mm -hmm. to the idea yeah. that some people are not comfortable yeah. with their gender. And I have a number of friends that are transgender. And I'll tell you, they're not trying to get rid of gender, my transgender friends. Yeah. They're actually trying to to, to be more, more uh, integrated with their sense of, the, of their gender. But this is a big 
pushback, right? That people yeah, say, oh, you just want some world where, you know, nothing makes any sense and, and bathrooms, for some reason, people are obsessed about bathrooms. So <laughs> I'm sure that your Twitter feed is <laughs> full know, of people funny. saying stuff like, boy, if you read this book, you're going to end up, you know, uh, having to use unisex bathrooms, which frankly, who yeah, cares? Like, so, I don't know. That's well, a whole other conversation. That's a whole modern thing too. You know, I'm a medieval historian and the fact that we even have bathrooms is a modern luxury. Um, you know, and that there's, you know, we just, historic history helps us put things in perspective. And, um, you know, and if, and other parts of the world also don't have the luxury of having separate bathrooms. I mean, this is a first world problem as one of my missionary friends always says, you know, the first world problem. So, I think, but at the same time, this, I have many students who bring this to me who will say, but, you know, if complementarianism, if you don't value complementarianism, if you don't value biblical womanhood, then you don't value what makes me a woman. And I'm like, why do you think that? <laughs> you know, where did the, why do you think that? And the fact is, is that what I would argue is that God allows and shows this in the Bible, you know, he overturns sort of assumptions about gender and what women and men are able to do. He puts women doing men's things. He puts men doing things that would often be associated more, you know, with women. Um, I love how one of my favorite New Testament scholars is um, Beverly Gaventa, and she picks up on a medieval theme where Paul actually talks about um, Jesus as mother and takes on maternal characteristics more than he talks about being masculine. He talks about being, you know, he, he puts Christianity in maternal or so than in masculine terms. And um, this is the medieval world did this too. We have this whole thread in uh, medieval monastic theology about Jesus as mother and uh, Jesus, you know, as being, as, as feeding us with his breast milk, uh, wow. these maternal things. And so it just shows us that our, our, uh, our, we really are, I guess, just fixated on trying to make differences between us. And it seems to me that one of the things that God, what he did, if you look at the Genesis creator ordered order, he created human first. Hmm. That's what Adam is. Adam's human. And then he divided us into male and female. And one of my favorite authors is a woman named Dorothy L. Sayers in the uh, early part of the 20th century. She's a fantastic mystery author too. And she said, you know, the problem is she said, and her question that she asked, she says, is are women human? And she says that by focusing so much on the differences of women, we always make them other and we separate them from being human. So when we think about humanity, we focus on men only and women are something different. And what if instead we focused on the fact that women and men are human? You know, instead of focusing on difference first, what if we focused on sameness first and then let people express their differences and be, you know, if you, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, um, I am, I, I'm a woman, I'm fully comfortable with being a woman. Um, so I don't really understand. I'm also a feminist and yeah. I don't see any, I don't see any 
problem with having those two things together. All right, I know you've, you've said a few times that you're um, more familiar or uh, comfortable speaking of the medieval moments than uh, the, you know, yes. the 2021 moment. But let me uh, <laughs> dra- drag you up to now again, if, if, if it's okay. Sure, I'll do it. I'll do uh, it. I'll answer uh, as I can. Where do you think we... Like, how are we doing and where are we going? Because it, it is, yeah. uh, I'll say as a 54-year-old man, to feel like this conversation is still necessary, your excellent book is needed now as much as ever, um, after the women's movements of the uh, the history of this country, that we're still having this conversation, that where how women can function, that you know, decades after I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar was a famous song. Um, we're still in this in this time. And in some ways it feels like it's getting worse that men who in political and 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 entertainment world can treat women the way that Donald Trump does and Matt Gates does and yeah. and and Cuomo does and, and all these people do. You just think to yourself, Either we're not getting any better or it's getting worse. And as a hope-filled, positive, you know, future optimist, that really strikes at my core. How are we doing? Yeah. And you're working with college students at a at a Baptist-related university, Baylor University. <clears throat> um, I, and I'm not one who trusts that future generate, you know, that the, the next generation is just going to solve all of our problems. I think we all have to solve all of our problems <laughs> all the time because right. you know, I, yeah. I, I know who the hippie generation was and they're you know, the current baby boomer. So it's not, you can't, you can't trust the next generation, but how are we doing? Do you think there's a way forward here? And is there, is this just a perpetual conversation that's been going on since Aristotle and we just have to learn how to respond to it every day? Or is this something that in some level we can solve or kind of get beyond? Yeah, no. Um, so I, I am too a hopeful person. Uh, I, However, also admit that this is a tiring conversation to have because we keep having it. Women, one of the things that you will see if you start actually reading women, women's voices from the past, like Christine de Pizan, who is another medieval woman. And one of the things that she does is she says, look, um, the reason, and I'm you know, really sort of paraphrasing her, but she said, ideas matter. And uh, when, if you think negative ideas about women, it's because you don't understand, you don't remember all of the things that women have done and how important they've been in Christian history. And so, and this is actually an argument that women just keep making. We have to reinvent the wheel almost every generation. We have to start over in our arguments. And one of the things I was trying to do with the making of biblical womanhood was show the historical continuity of not only patriarchy, but women who have always patriarchy is wrong and mm-hmm. that this is not just me as an at you know after th- after the feminist movement this is not just the feminist movement in the at the end of the 20th century this is not just the suffrage movement in the 19th century this is women who have always recognized that there's something wrong with this system and that it doesn't it doesn't help us us. It hurts women. And that in order for, we always have to do workarounds to try in ways that, um, that men don't have to, women have to adapt and figure out, um, you know, because there are so many limits and there are still limits on us. So that's exhausting. That's tiring that we keep having to have that conversation. Yet at the same time, I see a lot of hope in what's happening right now in our world because some things are different. And one of the things that's different is that social media has 
completely disrupted the stranglehold on the narrative. And so the narrative that has been controlled, you know, the narrative that has controlled what ordinary Christians in the, in the, um, and churches know about um, women and understanding like the New Testament narrative and what is Paul really doing about women? I mean, one of the things that I argue is that scholarship, sound scholarship by even conservative scholars explodes biblical womanhood. Um, it's there. You don't have to read, you don't have to find it. It's been there for a long time. It's just ordinary Christians don't know it because they haven't had access to it. And now with the social media world, they have access to it. Um, they can hear different voices and they can realize that maybe what they have been taught is not the whole story. And this is by no means, I think the thing that has helped me the most through this is that I understand as a historian that these are people's problems. These aren't God's problems. Um, God is always the same and God is always calling us to the same thing. And I have always been able to recognize, I think because of the historical continuity, that this is people who keep messing it up. And while I think we are going to keep messing it up, I think we can mess it up less. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I am hopeful we're at a point where maybe we can start messing it up less. I, I, I am with you. So uh, tell us a little bit about why you wrote well, why you wrote this book. I saw in your social media description of yourself, you say, I didn't want to be an activist. Uh, yeah, and then I didn't. something happened in 2016. A lot of us have a born again moment in, in and around late November, 2016. What, what, what happened that got you now from being a medieval historian and scholar to writing a book that's now got the right. complementarian crowd all fired up at you? All, what, yes, I know. I know. Happened? Sometimes I, yeah, what happened? So, um, so I am, I'm a medieval historian, which says something about my personality. It means <laughs> I like to spend lots of time by my Myself in European study. <laughs> and here I am <laughs> having to yeah. do all sorts of things that make me uncomfortable. Um, in 2016, two things happened. One thing is, is that my husband and I came to a point in the complementarian church that we had been in for quite some time that we could no longer support the way our church was treating women. And we decided to try to help change that. Mm. And in the course of that, we lost, um, he lost his job. He was fired. It was pretty dramatic. Uh, it was it was pretty awful the way that it was done to us. We were forced to not tell anybody, um, and it was it was just it was a very hard time for us. And in the midst of this was also when Trump was elected, and I you know I really am a pretty traditional person. I mean, it's just, it's just the culture that I've been comfortable in and have been in. And so I always tell people, I say for the election of Trump to hit women that I know the way that it did, it really should tell us that something was wrong. I mean, as a woman's historian to see somebody put forward by pastors as being a as God calling him to this position when I knew what he did to women, it was appalling. And to have that happen at the same time that I had, um, you know, and what I saw was a lot of complementarian voices supporting Donald Trump at a time when my husband and I had just been traumatized by what happened to us in our church. And I just had this moment, the book starts where I, I say I broke, where I, I didn't know what I was going to do but I knew something had to be done. I knew I had to tell people what I knew about the history of women 
and the history of women in the church and to let people know that what was going on in the church was very different from the Jesus I knew. And so that's why I wrote the book. Well, I am so glad that you did. And uh, somebody that's that commented here is Ani Zonneveld, who I hope you know, and all of you know, she was a guest here a couple weeks ago. <laughs> she runs an organization called Muslims for Progressive Values. And so she's been speaking in the Muslim context in similar spaces that you're speaking yeah. now. And there's so many... Uh, crossovers, right? There's so many places that we see there those, those similarities. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the power of all this. Yeah. <laughs> and um, patriarchy, so, human. Yeah, and and we're all trying to find our our ways and places to to talk about this, right? And 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 to raise these issues. Uh, I think it's really powerful to hear women talking about this, and to be professors and writing books and being biblical scholars, because that tends to prove the point that this complementarian view and, and that, um, that, the, that if the idea that there's two genders that have different roles, if it was that women had the roles that in, involved power and acceptance and, and authority, well, that would be one thing. That's just never how the complementarian bend goes, right? It always goes that women are, are less. Um, so I think it's very powerful that women are speaking uh, and, and doing all the, all the things publicly that have been uh, always going on privately. I also feel like it's important for men to speak up to other men and to say, knock this stuff off and this isn't the way to do it. Do, do you have a yeah. sense about that? Like um, the, the f I'm not, not saying you're a feminist, but sometimes the feminist movements of the early 1970s wanted more men to be uh, uh, voicing and some people wanted it to be less. And so that's been a, a tug and a pull. Do you have a sense about how this should, how this should go forward and what the role of particular <laughs> genders and roles should be? Yeah. You know, um, people who have positions of power and privilege are always voices that are able to help, um, in areas of oppression and so simply because they have more ability to do that, and often whether right or wrong, people, they have larger platforms. And so um, I think as, I think we should use our platforms for, for good. And so I do think, and I don't know if it's a gender thing. <laughs> as I said, I think, I think it's a right thing. Um, I think we speak out for people who can't speak for themselves. And this is one of the reasons why I did this too. I, I'm a white woman. Um, I'm so white. My, we've had DNA tests. You know, I'm just totally European white. Um, and I have been more in a privileged position. And it seems to me that's part of also why I spoke out. I was like, this isn't, this isn't just about me. This is about all, it's about other women who are being even more hurt than I was and they can't speak for themselves. And so I think if you have the ability to speak for people who can't speak for themselves, you should. And so that's really, that's why a medieval historian who does not like being in the public stood up because I think it's the right thing to do. Well, uh, I will say it's very medieval of you too, because those those women were serious, <laughs> serious badasses uh, in, the, in the medieval period. Uh, so the book is the making of uh, the making of biblical womanhood, uh, or the baking of megagol womanhood, whatever I was going to call it. Uh, the, how However the you subjugation say it. Yep. of women became gospel truth. Um, it's not gospel truth. I wish that it wasn't. 
um, and Beth Allison Barr. Thank you so much for this book. Thanks for being uh, on this podcast. People are going to want to be in touch with you. I can see it already. They're all over the the, the social stream here. Um, what's what's the best way for them for them to do that? To to sneak up to you when you're in a in a study carol somewhere deep in European uh, medieval <laughs> history, or what's the, yeah, what's the I best wish way I could to know. connect yeah, um, I'm on social media. I'm Beth Allison Barr. You can find me most places. Um, I will warn you that I may step off social media for a little while when this book comes out because I'm afraid it's going to get really bad for a while. But I'll be back. And I am pretty active on social media. So you can find me. I also write on Pathios on the Anxious Bench. I have a post actually coming up next week that I need to finish. So you can follow my writing still there on the Anxious Bench on Pathios. So. Well, and I, I'm realizing that I have a pre-publication copy here. When when does the book come out and when can the people um, uh, it come, get it? In? Yeah, it comes out April 20th. So, um, and and I will say that not just to, it's it's been amazing the uh, how much it has already been pre-ordered. It's already gone to a second printing. So um, anyway, so you you might want to pre-order. <laughs> you might, you might want to get it early. You might want to get it early. That, that so, would be a week for a week from Tuesday, friends, is the 20th. Yeah. And I don't know that by looking at a calendar. It's just that books come so, out on Tuesday. So a little hint for you, a little freebie. Uh, all books uh, that are published by publishers come out on Tuesdays. They That's the agreed upon You know, I didn't even count. know that. I'm, that's where they count. I'm that's so how they count like sales by the week, which is how books are oh. ranked. So there has to be a definitive day. Movies come out officially on Fridays. Uh, uh our podcast comes out every day of the work week, uh, uh, but books come out on Tuesday. So that's why you'll often see people in and around Tuesday. So get one pre-ordered. Sometimes they land in your mailbox ahead of time and it's really a treat. And uh, they do, this is a, they do. I think some people have gotten theirs already. Oh, they have. Yeah. This is a, this is a great read. Well, it's substantive. I will say, I mean, this is, um, th- th- this makes the argument thoroughly and fully and is worth every bit of your effort. So, uh, thank you for, for all that you've done and for being public, even when it's um, something that's uh, pushing you beyond uh, where you thought you might be at this moment. I'm glad you're here. So thanks. That's true. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, friends, uh, you know, you can be part of the Vote Common Good podcast daily. If you watch this only on the social streams and don't yet have the audio version, go and get us uh, get the podcast and say something nice about it if you would. And if you only listen on podcast and you're ever on one of the social media streams like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and all the rest, Uh, Find us there and give us a like. It really does help all of those things. And if you go to votecommongood.com, you can be connected to all the things that we're doing. And as we like to say, don't miss the donate button uh, when you're over there. So (laughs) glad to have you around. Uh, Thank you again, Professor. And uh, we'll see all of you uh, back here in our regular places on Monday.